Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in a Lenten sermon series titled, Moving It All Forward, which through the lens of trajectory allows us to explore how ancient texts that seem violent or irrelevant to us today actually in the ancient world represented a move forward in the author's time and culture. And so with that understanding, we're then situated to consider how these age-old stories can inspire us to look for where the divine beckons us forward today in 2023. Beyond the particular content of each sermon in this series, it's our hope that these sermons can help us to rework that old muscle memory when it comes to our relationship with the Bible. We're trying to model a historical, sensible, even relevant way of reading the Bible and thinking about the Bible and engaging the Bible today. This morning, rather than tackle a particular passage or story, we're going to consider an entire book, the book of Leviticus. (laughs) Who's excited about this? Oh, Leviticus. New Year's resolution, it's December 31st, and you are about to toast champagne, and you are thinking, what am I going to do this year? And you decide, I am going to read the Bible. So January, you read Genesis. Genesis is so good. It's got the stories and the patriarchs, and you move into February, and you've got Exodus. And for 19 chapters, you are just digging it. We get to the Mount Sinai, we get to the Ten Commandments, and then from 20 to chapter 40, it is all about how to build the ark. You think in February, it's okay, I've put together a play structure before. This is helpful, I can see why this matters. And then you get into March and you are in Leviticus. Oh my goodness, Leviticus. And you find yourself thinking... I don't think I'm going to read through the Bible this year. (laughs) I'll try it next year. Uh, Years ago, a group from Pearl decided to read a a large section of Scripture together on a Saturday morning, and so they got together, and they read through Genesis, and they read through Exodus, and just before lunch, they got to that section in Leviticus on skin lesions that fester and pus, and then they broke for lunch and had pepperoni pizza. They've never eaten pizza from that day forward. (laughs) In all seriousness, what are we to do with a book like Leviticus? It is so old. It is so peculiar. And if we're being honest, it has caused a lot of harm. A couple examples. Here's one from Leviticus 15. When a woman has a discharge of blood that is in her regular discharge from her body, she shall be in her impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. Everything upon which she lies during her impurity shall be unclean. Everything also upon which she sits shall be unclean. 
Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean. Whoever touches anything upon which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean. Whether it is the bed or anything upon which she sits, when she touches it, it shall be unclean until the evening. Now, to be clear, I don't think that there are many people out there in the world who believe that a woman in menstruation is impure for seven days and in need of cleansing. But the idea of menstruation being unclean or indecent or weak or foul or the idea that during menstruation a woman is less capable of normal living and must be removed from normal life rhythms or the idea that a woman must do something to reintegrate into normal life after menstruation these are deeply misogynistic ideas these are harmful ideas And at times within Christian life, texts like this have been used to shame women and to burden women and to control and to diminish woman agency, which we see even today in our quote-unquote Christian country, right? Where a majority of men tell women what they can and cannot do with their bodies, where women make less than men for the same work, and where women lose opportunity or are forced to choose between career and children. These are heinous acts that often find grounding in ancient biblical ideologies that at times can be traced back all the way to these ancient thoughts in the book of Leviticus. Similarly, a couple texts from Leviticus have been used by the church to call homosexuality an abomination, even though the same book explains that adultery must result in being put to death, a field cannot be planted with two kinds of seed, and clothing cannot be woven with two kinds of material. You see, the religiously privileged have been able to pick and choose which verses from Leviticus must be taken literally and which verses can simply be principalized and which verses can be outright ignored. They've even tried to categorize content in Leviticus by distinguishing between, well, these are sacrificial laws, and and these are priesthood laws, and these are ceremonial laws, and these are holiness laws, and these are dietary laws. Even though, for example, within the holiness laws of Leviticus chapter 17 to 26, they selectively choose the verses about what not to do, including the verses on homosexuality, but they ignore the put people to death parts. Speaking about biblical interpretation, this is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. It's inconsistent and it's based on bias. Which brings me back to the introduction of this sermon series two weeks ago on accommodation. Rather than trying to read Leviticus through the modern lens of infallibility or inerrancy that forces humans to do all of these strange and inconsistent interpretive moves to try and make sense of a book like Leviticus, accommodation allows for the biblical author's ancient and limited perspective on the world. And accommodation allows us to ask why. Why was something like this put in the Bible? Why was something like this important to its original audience. And that, you see, is where the goodness of an old and strange book like Leviticus begins to display its splendor. Here's what I mean. According to the biblical narrative, Leviticus occurs closely after Israel makes Exodus out of Egypt, where they've lived as slaves for nearly 400 years. Now, just pause to think about that context. As an Israelite, all you have experienced, generation after generation after generation after generation, is to do what you are told to do or else. 
You work when you're told to work. You work harder when you're told to work harder. You eat when you're told to eat, and you sleep when you're told to sleep. That is how it's been generation after generation after generation until suddenly, wonderfully, you've been liberated through Moses' miracles by the power of God. Through the Red Sea to the foot of the mountain, you receive the law, you build the ark and the tabernacle, and you were supposed to journey through the wilderness to a land that flows with milk and honey. Think about that. No rhythms, no routines, no meal plans, no work plans, no structure that teaches you how to say thanks to God, no structure that teaches you how to say sorry to God, no structure to say help God. There's no calendar, no holiday, no feasts, no liturgies, no traditions. You and your people are a blank slate in a brand new world. Based on this context, some questions that may come to mind might include, what should we eat? How do we cook it? What habits might make us sick? What habits might keep us healthy? How should we go about making amends with one another? How do we seek forgiveness from God? How do we say thanks to God? What do we do if we're going to meet with God? It's in the midst of these kinds of questions that Leviticus provides some answers. It's in the midst of this lack of structure that Leviticus provides a framework. And for ancient Israel, a people who lived for hundreds of years without the agency to formulate answers and to create structures, the information in this book was both guide and sage. Here's how you ordain a priest. And here's how you support a priest who's supposed to exist to love you and care for you. Stay away from these kinds of foods. Consume these kinds of foods. Don't kill your children for God like the other nations. If you want to thank God, here's how to offer a thanksgiving offering. If you want to say sorry to God, here's how to offer a sin offering. Do this after childbirth. It'll help keep you healthy. Do this if you have skin infections. Do this if you get mildew in your tent. No joke. Leviticus chapter 13. Do this if you have mildew in your tent. And here are some traditions to help give shape to your life. Sabbath once a week. You newly freed people need to learn to rest. You've never been able to do that. Day of propitiation. You newly freed people need to learn forgiveness instead of violence. You've been treated so harshly. And here's some feasts to give shape to your year. Feast of weeks. Here's how to give thanks for your crops. Feast of trumpets. A day off to just party and celebrate. Feast of tabernacles. Once you get into your land and build your homes and forget that you once lived in the wilderness, spend seven days in the wilderness and build these huts and live in them to remind yourselves what it's like to not have a house. And jubilee, every 50 years, forgive those in debt, return land to its rightful owner, spend the entire year resting, connecting, living in awe, and playing. Can you see how Leviticus was good and helpful and even comforting to an ancient and newly freed people? I imagine that it was good to know what to eat and what to avoid eating. I imagine that it was helpful to know this is how to say thank you, this is how to say sorry. This is how to live peacefully in relationship with one another and how to make amends. I imagine that it was comforting to be given a weekly, monthly, and annual days and feasts and traditions that could give shape marked by time for how you see and understand the world. You see, this is what Leviticus did for Israel. Leviticus made the ideal concrete 
for an ancient people. I'd like to say that again because it's really important when it comes to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus made the ideal concrete for an ancient people. Now, is the concrete in Leviticus for us? No. No, of course not. It is not for us. Unless you want to go to jail for killing an adulterer, for slaughtering some poor lamb, right? Leviticus is not for us. But Leviticus, because Leviticus was not written for you, it wasn't written for me. It was written for ancient Israel, a newly freed people millennia ago. That's why trying to read Leviticus through the modern lens of infallibility or inerrancy forces humans to do all of these strange and inconsistent interpretive moves to try and make sense of a book like Leviticus. These ways of making the ideal concrete are not for us. At best, to try and force humans from the 21st century into Leviticus living is hilarious. Are you mixing cotton and polyester in that shirt, buddy? (laughs) And at worst, to try and force humans from the 21st century into Leviticus living is barbaric, violent, and dehumanizing. Menstruating? Well, that's unclean. Queer? Well, that is detestable. Leviticus says it. But that is not good Bible reading. It does not bear the fruit of love. It fails to appreciate the development of human consciousness. And like we read in this morning's New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus' disciples violated the Sabbath, he said to the Pharisees, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which isn't just a shifting of the concrete, but it's a total transfiguration of an ideal in which humans had developed far enough to appreciate that something like mercy is actually higher on on the value system than this thing that they've always valued called sacrifice. And so with all of this in mind, what does Leviticus have to say to us? Right? Like, what could this old book that was for Israel millennia ago, what could it have for us today? Well, through the lens of trajectory, the kernel of goodness in Leviticus is how it makes the ideal concrete in order to help these newly freed people to flourish. Here's what I mean. We humans exist with ideals. An ideal is a conception inside of ourselves about what is perfect and good and beautiful. And it doesn't matter what you call these ideals. Call them divine, call them intuitive, call them evolutionary. It doesn't really matter. We humans hold conceptions of what is perfect, what is beautiful, what is good. That is to say we hold ideals inside of ourselves. And the eternal conundrum for humanity is how do we move our lives toward these ideals? Like, We can talk all we want about the ideal of mercy, but how do we practically embody mercy? Or we could talk forever about the ideal of rest, but how do we practically embody rest? Enter side door Leviticus. Leviticus makes the point that concrete practices, albeit imperfect, are a primary way to make ideals manifest in our lives today. And it's with this in mind that I think Leviticus is actually more relevant than ever, than ever. We are now at the end of the third year of COVID, three years of pandemic. Over the last three years, we thought that we were going to die. We worried that people less fortunate than ourselves were going to die. We scoured for toilet paper and hand sanitizer. We made with our very own hands masks. 
We shrunk family and friends into quarantine circles, and we connected virtually, which is to say that many of our rhythms and ways of being have died. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, what day is it right now? (laughs) What year is it? Where am I? Do you feel as untethered as I feel? Because everything is just strange. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Right, but there's also been good. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I cut away a lot of things that didn't really matter during COVID. I let go of some relationships that weren't good during COVID. I moved. I began a new career. I went back to school. I bake cookies. (laughs) But now, more than ever, as the world begins to open up, I'm recognizing that people are thirsty for, even hungry for making ideals more intentionally concrete in their lives. To be clear, I'm not saying that we're like Israel after 400 years of slavery, but we are humans after three years of pandemic. And many of us are feeling the human ache for meaning, for intimacy, for mercy rather than angst, for rest rather than slothfulness, for creative work rather than mere productivity, and for intentional movement toward justice, equity, and inclusion. And it's to these deeply human desires that Leviticus declares, make the ideal concrete. Not like the the Israelites did millennia ago. That wouldn't work. That would actually be barbaric. That would actually pull the whole thing backward. But but for today, how do we make ideals concrete? For example, mercy. Mercy is the decision to live in compassion rather than in opposition. Do you know how much energy opposition takes up inside of our bodies? That is a lot of energy. Mercy is to choose to live compassionately. How might we make the ideal of mercy concrete in our lives? Well, perhaps there's a particular person with whom you feel great opposition toward. Maybe you set aside three minutes every day to say to that person quietly in your heart, may you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be loved. And then you pause for a moment. You actually picture that person. You see them in your mind's eye and you say it to them again. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be loved. Now that's not going to move you to mercy. Snap in a heartbeat. But, but that practice, that concrete is going to move you toward the ideal of mercy that you desire. Or perhaps you want to be a human being rather than a human doing. But maybe a whole day of rest is just too much for you. Maybe you begin by taking three hours on your day off to totally unplug from your phone. Or maybe you stop checking email from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Or maybe you commit to using up all of your annual vacation time, even if you just stay at home and don't go to work. Or perhaps you want to embody the ideal of gratitude. Maybe you wake up and write out three things that you're thankful for every single morning. It's just the first thing you do. You wake up, you turn off the alarm, you grab a little book, and you write down three things that you're really grateful for. Or maybe you tell the first person that you know and talk to each morning one thing that you appreciate about them. Or maybe you pray a prayer of gratitude at night before you fall off to slumber. The list could go on and on. In fact, many people find the list of ideals so inexhaustible that they turn to life coaches or to mentors or to sages or at times even to religion to try and make ideals manifest in their lives. Did you know that the word religion comes from the Latin word religare? 
Re means back, and ligare means to bind. It's from ligare that we get the English word ligament or ligamentation. And so religion at its essence, at its best, when religion is doing the thing that it should do without violence and harm, religion is a system of ligamentations. It's a framework that binds we humans back together. That's what it's supposed to do. Isn't that beautiful? And so for millennia within Christianity, there's been a weekly gathering And the gathering at Pearl moves like a plot. There's the background uh, announcements. Here's what's going on. And then there's the inciting incident. It's the call to worship. And off we go on the rising action and we sing songs and we hear scripture read over us and we listen to a sermon and we, we confess our hearts before God and we're assured that God accepts all of us, even that which we don't accept ourselves. And then we get to the climactic moment of our service, which is Eucharist. Everyone is invited to this common table. Because God breaks and bleeds and gives God's self to everyone. And then finally we get to resolution, the denouement, doxology, and benediction. And we go back out into the world, having rehearsed this beautiful story of God. And with this concrete plot more deeply embedded in our bodies week after week and month after month and year after year, it slowly moves us forward toward ever more inclusion and love ever more inclusion and love. And similar to the feasts and holidays in Leviticus, the church has its own calendar. Did you know that the way a person marks time deeply shapes their understanding of the world? A case in point, today is daylight saving time and you are all exhausted and grumpy, right? (laughs) This is not an easy day for us. And many people mark the calendar, we, we sometimes call it the Hallmark calendar, right? Just think of the Hallmark calendar. You've got Labor Day and then you've got I don't know, Halloween, and then you've got Christmas and New Year's Eve, and we've got St. Patrick's Day, and then there's spring break, and then there's Memorial Day, and then there's the 4th of July. And We can think of our whole year, and we can even picture things that we do and vacations we take and people that we hang out with, and the church calendar is similar, but it follows the story of Jesus. Advent longing for light in December. Christmas brilliance around the darkest day of our year. The gift of epiphany, recognizing that this light is for all people in January and February. And then we journey with Jesus into suffering and death during the late winter months of Lent before Easter life bursts forth in spring. Until finally ordinary time during the summer and fall where we merely live our lives and grow together before we circle back and do it all again. Now, I'm not saying that trying to Uh, implement these concrete practices of gathering and marking time as a Christian are for everyone. But they are for some, maybe even for many people who are coming out of COVID and longing for some concrete ways of being that move them forward into the lives of love and flourishing that they long for. It might be for them. It might be for you. I've been finding as I'm coming out of this COVID funk that it's deeply for me. Over the last few months, I've actually doubled down on my Christian tradition, and I've actually extended my Christian tradition. I've spent the last few months learning about memorizing and praying the rosary. The rosary means rose garden, and we're in Portland, so I thought, why not give it a try? There are a lot of prayers to Mary. I grew up being taught that you don't pray to Mary, you pray to God. 
And I've noticed as I've prayed the rosary decade after decade, which is mystery after mystery, which is day after day, and I've been talking to Mary, in some ways I've begun as I talk to Mary, in some ways I begin to see my mom, and as I begin to see my mom, I begin to think of God, and I'm beginning to make connections of the feminine divine that I've never been able to make before. And it's been incredibly, incredibly grounding for me. I'm realizing in therapy that I missed a lot of nurturing growing up, and I'm feeling in this practice nurtured by the Divine Mother. It's been wonderful for my life. It's moved me toward the ideal of the kind of human that I really would like to be more about, a nurturing human, an embraced-by-God human, a held human. I'm not trying to say that the rosary is the answer to all of your longings for the ideal. No concrete practice is. The concrete is just a step in a direction toward the kind of lives that we want to live. And as we've seen this morning through the book of Leviticus, sometimes the concrete becomes antiquated. Sometimes the concrete becomes hilarious. Sometimes the concrete becomes barbaric. And so perhaps you've been doing something for a very long time. You have this habit and you've just done it forever. Maybe it's time to give it up. Maybe it's no longer relevant. Maybe it's no longer a concrete step forward. It's actually a step backward or it's, a, it's stuck in the mud. You're not moving anywhere. It is wonderfully okay to let things, practices, steps that we've been taking let go. If the concrete doesn't help to move you toward the ideal, let it go, be free, and let it go. Pearl Church, today is the third Sunday of Lent. We have three Sundays to go before Easter. For millennia, Lent has been a concrete season to pause, to slow down, to set aside, to let go, and to dream about the ideals that we know inside of ourselves that we want to embody, but they remain elusive. You're invited this season to embrace with concrete determination the wisdom and health and rest and grace that you desire for your own human flourishing. For this life that you now have is pure gift. Lent declares, make of it what you will. Make the best of it because it doesn't last. Everything is impermanent. Your life is worth your very best. Let us pray. God, will you free us from the harmful habits? Will you wake us to the divine goodness that resides in us all and is calling us forward into more and more and more life? We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.